Chapter 4, The Preparation When the mail got successfully to Dover, in the course of the forenoon, the head drawer at the Royal George Hotel opened the coach door, as his custom was. He did it with the same flourish of ceremony for a mail journey from London in winter, as an achievement to congratulate an adventurous traveller upon. By that time, there was only one adventurous traveller left be congratulated, for the two others had been sent down at their respective roadside destinations. The mildewy inside of the coach, with its damp and dirty straw, its disagreeable smell, and its obscurity, was rather like a large dog kennel. Mr. Lorry, the passenger, shaking himself out of it in chains of straw, a tangle of shaggy wrapper, flapped hat, and muddy legs, was rather like a large sort of dog. There will be a packet to Calais tomorrow, drawer. Yes, sir. If the weather holds and the wind sets tolerable fair, the tide will be the tide will serve pretty nicely about two in the afternoon, sir. Uh, bed, sir? I shall not go to bed till night. But I want a bedroom and a barber. And then breakfast, sir. Yes, sir? That way, sir, if you please. Show Concord. Gentlemen's valets and hot water to Concord. Pull off gentlemen's boots in Concord. You will find a fine seal coat fire, sir. Fetch Barber to Concord. Stir about there, now, for Concord. The Concord bedchamber, being always assigned to a passenger by, his, by the mail, and passengers by the mail being always heavily wrapped up from head to foot, the room had the odd interest for the establishment of the Royal George, that although but one kind of man was seen to go into it, all kinds and varieties of men came out of it. Consequently, another drawer, and two porters, and several maids and the landlady were all loitering by accident at various points of the road between the Concord and the coffee-room, where a gentleman of sixty, formerly dressed in a brown suit of clothes, pretty well worn, but very well kept, with large square cuffs and large flaps to the pockets, passed along on his way to, the to his breakfast. The coffee-room had no other occupant that forenoon than that gentleman in brown. His breakfast-table was drawn before the fire, and as he sat, with its light shining on him, waited for the meal, he sat so still that he might have been sitting for his portrait. Very orderly and methodical he looked, with a hand on each knee, and a loud watch ticking a sonorous sermon under his flapped waistcoat, as though it pitted its gravity and longevity against the levity and evanescence of the brisk fire. He had a good leg, and there was little vein of it, for his brown stockings fitted sleek and close, and were of a fine texture, his shoes and buckles too, though plain, were trim. He wore an odd little sleek, crisp flaxen wig, setting very close to his head, which wig, as it is to be presumed, was made of hair, which looked far more as though it were spun from filaments of silk or glass. His linen, though not of the finest in accordance with his stockings, was as white as the tops of the waves that broke upon the neighboring beach, or the specks of sails that glinted in the sunlight far at sea. A face habitually suppressed and quieted, 
was still lighted up under the quaint wig by a pair of moist, bright eyes that it must have cost their owner, in years gone by, some pains to drill to the, to the composed and reserved expression of Tellison's bank. He had a healthy color in his cheeks, and his face, though lined, bore few traces of anxiety. But perhaps the, con the confidential bachelor clerks in Tellison's banks were principally occupied with the cares of other people, and perhaps second-hand cares, like second-hand clothes, come easily off and on. Completing his resemblance to a man who was sitting for, for his portrait, Mr. Lorry dropped off to sleep. The arrival of his breakfast roused him, and he sat to the drawer as he moved his chair to it. I wish accommodation prepared for a young lady who may come here at any time today. She may ask for Mr. Jarvis Lorry, or she may only ask for a gentleman from Tellson's Bank. Please to let me know. Yes, sir. Tellson's Bank in London, sir. Yes. Yes, sir. We have oftentimes the honor to entertain your gentlemen in their traveling backwards and forwards betwixt London and Paris, sir. A vast deal of traveling, sir, in Tellson's and Company House. Yes, we are quite a French house, as well as an English one. Yes, sir, not much in the habit of such traveling yourself, I think, sir. Not of late years. It is fifteen years since, since I came last from France. Indeed, sir. That was before my time here, sir. Before our people's time here, sir. The George was in other hands at that time, sir. I believe so. But I would hold a pretty wager, sir, that a house like Telson and company was flourishing a matter of fifty, not to speak of fifteen years ago. You might trouble that, and say a hundred and fifty, not yet not be far from the truth. Indeed, sir. Rounding his mouth in both his eyes, he stepped back forward from the table. The waiter shifted his napkin from his right arm to his left, dropped into a comfortable attitude, and stood surveying the guest while he ate and drank, as from an observatory or watchtower. According to the immemorial usage of waiters in all ages. When Mr. Lorry had finished his breakfast, he went out for a stroll on the beach. The little narrow, crooked town of Dover hid itself away from the beach and ran its head into the chalk cliffs like marine ostrich. The beach was a desert of heaps of sea and stones and tumbling wildly about, and the sea did what it liked. And what it liked was destruction. It thundered at the town, it thundered at the cliffs, and brought the coast down madly. The air among the houses was of so strong a piscatory flavor that one might have supposed sick fish went up to be dipped in it, as sick people went down to be dipped in the, in, in the sea. A little fishing was done in the port, and a quantity of strolling about by night. It looked seaward, and looked seaward, particularly at, the, at those times when the tides made, as was near flood. Small tradesmen, who didn't no business whatsoever, sometimes unaccountably realized large fortunes, and it was remarka remarkable that nobody in the neighborhood could endure a lamplighter. As the day declined into the afternoon, 
and the air, which had been at intervals clear enough to allow the French coast to be seen, became again charged with a mist and vapor. Mr. Lorry's thoughts seemed to cloud too. When it was dark, as he sat before his coffee room fire, awaiting his dinner as he had awaited his breakfast, his mind was busily digging, digging, digging in the live red coals. A bottle of good claret. After dinner, does a digger in the red coals no harm, otherwise than it is a tendency to throw him out of work? Mr. Lorry had been idle a long time, and had just poured out his last glassful of wine with a complete, with as complete an appearance of satisfaction as if ever to be found in an elderly gentleman of fresh complexion who has got to the end of a bottle when a rattling of wheels came up the narrow street and rumbled into the inn yard. He set down his glass untouched. This man, this is Mademoiselle. In a very few minutes, the waiter came into the, to announce that Miss Manet had arrived from London. And would be happy to see the gentleman from Tellson's. So soon, Miss Manet had taken some refreshment on the road, and required none then, and was extremely anxious to see the gentleman from Tellson's imme immediately, if it suited his pleasure and convenience. The gentleman from Tellson's had nothing left for it but to empty his glass with an air of stolid desperation. Settle his odd little flaxen wig at its ears, and follow the waiter to Miss Manet's apartment. It was a large, dark room furnished in a funeral manner with black horsehair, and loaded with heavy dark tables. These had been oiled and oiled until the two tall candles at the on the table in the middle of the room were gloomily reflecting reflected on every leaf, as if they were buried in a deep in deep graves of black mahogany. And no light to speak of could be expected from them from them until they were dug out. The obscurity was so difficult to penetrate that Mr. Lorry, picking his way over the well-worn Turkey carpet, supposed Miss Manet to be for the moment in some adjacent room. Until having got past the two tall candles, he saw standing to receive him by the table between them and the fire a young lady of not more than seventeen. In a riding cloak, and still holding her straw travelling hat in its ribbon, by its ribbon in her hand, as his eyes rested on a short, slight, pretty figure, a quantity of golden hair, a pair of blue eyes that met his own with an inquiring look, and a forehead with a singular capacity, remembering how young and smooth it was, of rifting and knitting itself into an expression that was not quite one of perplexity, of or wonder, or alarm. Or merely of a bright, fixed attention, though it included all the four expressions, as his eyes rested on these, a sudden vivid likeness passed before him of a child who he had held in his arms on a passage across that very channel one cold time, when the hail drifted heavily, and the sea ran high. The likeness passed away, like a breath along the surface of a gaunt pier glass behind her. On the frame of which a hospital procession of negro cupids, several headless, and all cripples, were offering black baskets of dead sea fruit to be black divinities of the feminine gender. And he made his formal bow to Miss Manet.
pray take a seat, sir, in a very clear, pleasant young voice, a little foreign in its accent, but a little, but very little indeed. I kiss your hand, miss, said Mr. Lorry, with the manners of an earlier date, as he made his formal bow again and took a seat. I received a, a letter from the bank, sir, yesterday, informing me that some intelligence or discovery, the word is not material, miss, either word will do, respecting the small property of my poor father, whom I never saw so long dead. Mr. Lorry moved his chair and cast a troubled look towards the hospital procession of Negro cupids, as if they had any help for anybody in their absurd baskets, rendered it necessary that I should go to Paris. There, too, communicate with a gentleman of the bank, so good as to be dispatched to Paris for the purpose. Myself? As I was prepared to hear, sir, she curtsied to him, young ladies made curtsies in those days, with a pretty desire to convey to him that she felt how much older and wiser he was than she. He made her another bow. I replied to the bank, sir, that it was considered necessary by those who know, and who are so kind to advise me, that I should go to France, and that as I am an orphan, and have no friend who could go with me, I should esteem it highly if I might be permitted to place myself, during the journey, under that worthy gentleman's protection. The gentleman had left London, but I think a messenger was sent after him, to beg the favor of his waiting for me here. I was happy, said Mr. Lorry, to be entrusted with the charge. I shall be more happy to execute it. Sir, I thank you indeed. I thank you very gratefully. I was told, it was told to me by the bank, that the gentleman would explain to me all the details of business, and that I must prepare myself to find them of surprising nature. I have done my best to prepare myself, and I naturally have a strong and eager interest to know what they are. Naturally, Mr. Voris, said Mr. Lorry. Yes, I, after a pause, he added again, settling the crisp flaxen wig at at his ears. It is very difficult to begin. He did not begin, but his indecision met her glance. The young forehead lifted itself into that singular expression, but it was pretty and characteristic, besides being singular, and she raised her hand as if with an, in, an involuntary action as she caught at or stayed some passing shadow. Are you quite a stranger to me, sir? Am I not? Mr. Lorry opened his hands and extended them outwards with an argumentative smile. Between the eyebrows and just over the little feminine nose, the line of which was, a, was as delicate a fi and fine as it was possible to be, the expression deepened itself as she took her seat thoughtfully in the chair by which she had hitherto remained standing. He watched her as she mused, and the moment she raised her eyes again went on. In your adopted country, I presume, I cannot do better than address you as a young English lady, Miss Manet, if you please. Sir? Miss Manet, I'm a man of business. I have a business charge to acquit myself of. In your reception of it, don't heed me any more than I was a speaking machine truly. I am not much else. I will, with your leave, relate to you, Miss, the story of our customers. Story? Story? 